buckle, 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 buckle. Ha <laughs> ha. You know the deal. And we're live. Hey, Mama. Hey, Choo Choo. How are you? Good. It's, uh, Good. It's been a little while, huh? It sure has. And uh, it's nice to see you on on our Zoom recording, since I didn't get a chance to actually see you in person. So close and yet so far away. Yeah. As, uh, as our viewers might have noticed, if, if they tuned in to the, the Bitcoin happy hour, I was struggling with my, with my camera. So I had to get that figured out. And then you were away for a little bit. And I've been busy applying for jobs. So... Uh, okay. Well, I hope something great works out for you very yeah. soon. Yeah. So it's been kind of kind of tough to find a recording schedule, but finally we're recording again today. Here we are. Um, just to just to reiterate, I was on Bitcoin Magazine's Happy Hour, and I will provide a link to that in the show notes, so you guys great. can check that out if you'd like. Um, again, I was having camera issues for the first 20, 30 minutes. I'm kind of all over the place, but uh, <laughs> I finally settled in and uh, got everything working on my cell phone. And even better. Would you like to share? Yeah, I'm so proud of you. Uh, you wrote that open letter that was just recently published in Bitcoin Magazine. I thought that was really, really terrific. Yeah, I'll add that in the show notes as well. Yeah. And the purpose yeah. for writing that was so people like me had a resource to give to people like you who are newly interested in the space and to get them going off on the right foot and to uh, kind of ask for patience and, you know, uh, encourage them to reach out to different, uh, more experienced Bitcoiners when trying to amass their knowledge, because it is a challenging process, which is one of the reasons we started this podcast. Yeah, it's certainly been a great learning experience. I'm just a little bummed that you're still calling me uh, new, but... That's okay. I can handle it. <laughs> and then uh, one more piece of news. Today, our, our good friend uh, Bernie Madoff passed away. Yeah. That was kind of a big story. Yep. I hope he burns in hell. <laughs> Just one of the many crooks that are uh, swimming around our financial system. Yep. But... Yep. Uh, way too many people and charities were really hurt by him and uh, glad he's not on this earth anymore. Yeah. So this episode's going to be a little bit messy potentially because <laughs> the topic we're discussing uh, itself is messy. Yeah. And that topic is inflation. It is kind of a bit of a circle, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah. yeah. So before we get into talking about um, kind of the pros and cons of measuring our economy with inflation as a measure of health or uh, kind of the repercussions that we're dealing with 
having an inflationary system, I think first it's important to define um, what is inflation so that when we're talking about it, we're pretty clear, um, you know, about what we're talking about. So I'll ask you first, what is your definition of inflation? I don't know that I have a formulated uh, definition. You've been thinking about it and I just got thrown this. Um, but I guess inflation is, uh, well, sometimes I think of it as an increase in the CPI, the consumer price index, or, um, you know, basically it's paying more for something the same thing that costs less recently. Yeah, that's... The increase in a price of a staple. Yeah, so I think that is the most commonly uh, used definition of inflation is, you know, a general price increase in goods and services. Okay, we agree on that. But there's also... Uh, another type of inflation that does not get discussed, which is monetary inflation, which, you know, simply means that there is a, there's an increase in um, the money supply. So whether, you know, you're measuring base money, M1, M2, all the way up, um, you know, inflation is also a general increase in how much money is circulating. Right. So we have two, we have two types of inflation that we've kind of landed on here. Yes. Monetary and the increase in price on goods and services. Correct. Okay. So, gotcha. So I wanted to, to go through that exercise because, you know, inflation is really tough to define these days and, you know, quote unquote experts who are discussing inflation often um, point to CPI um, or, you know, general price increases. And I see a lot of inconsistencies in, um, you know, kind of the, the reported numbers for inflation and the actual price increases that we may be seeing in the economy. And then there's a lot of balancing items that um, affect that figure that we'll get into later. And specifically, I'm referring to the de deflationary uh, pressure on prices due to uh, technology improving, you know, just generally throughout the market. What does that mean? So, you know, you look at something like a TV or a cell oh. phone or a cell phone or, you know, mm -hmm. most electronic goods or, you know, anything that kind of relies on a technological innovation, you know, a lot of the services we use today, Apple, Google, right? Google is free for us other than the fact that we're paying in Google tracking our data. I mean, the amount of information that you can find on Google is free. Yeah. Right. And that stuff doesn't really get calculated into 
inflation, but those pressures are all deflationary. Well, it's free to us, but they're making money from all their advertisers. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm saying we pay for it in privacy, but there's no cost money-wise to the end user. Right. Right. Anybody can open up a Google search page and mm-hmm. start from there. Actually, Graham Hildick asked me about that today. You mean I can just use Google? I said, yeah. <laughs> I don't have to pay for that? No. <laughs> so but let's, let's get into the premise behind an inflationary economy and just ask a basic question. Why should things get more expensive over time? You got any thoughts on that? Um, well, sometimes it's due to scarcity. Sometimes it's due to uh, the unit prices of what's going into the item increasing in price. Some of it sometimes has to do with demand, supply and demand. Um, there's a lot of reasons why things get more expensive over time. Well, I'm asking why, why should things get more expensive over time, right? Our, our entire mandate from the Federal Reserve is to maintain steady inflation and full employment, right? So that, that implication is that, in general, prices should rise over time right, throughout the entire market. My, my question is why, why should we expect things to get more expensive over time? Because my, you know, my, my contention is, you know, due to increasing technology and increasing competition, right, those should both have downward pressures on prices. Well, I guess it depends on the type of item. That's a very astute, uh, very astute observation. Okay. Right. So I, I think that, um, you know, due to our mandate of trying to spur inflation and not being able to attain uh, inflation has caused our financial markets to react in a way where all of that extra uh, stimulus coming from uh, the Fed or the Treasury goes right into hard assets, right? Stocks, bonds, real estate, Bitcoin, whatever it may be, you know, it's people leaving the dollar uh, to, to find something that will preserve their purchasing power over time because the money will not. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're speaking specifically about stimulus money, supposedly people need the money for, you know, basic goods and services that they haven't been able to afford Do I mean, right now you're talking about the COVID stimulus, lack of employment or reduced uh, salaries or, you know, there've been a lot of those kinds of things happening. 
Well, the, the problem is the, the stimulus has been occurring, uh, you know, really since the mid 80s, right? It's been a slow process over time. And then it really got accelerated in 2008 after the great financial crisis. For sure. The big bailout. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, financial stimulus from the Fed and the Treasury and whoever else it's coming from has been occurring throughout that time as well. So it doesn't have to be specific to, you know, coronavirus stimulus checks. Right. right? I wasn't sure how far you were going back. Okay. So go ahead. Where are yeah, we? So, so, so over time, that money finds itself into hard assets, right? And it pushes the price of those assets up. Yes. More so than stuff that gets measured in the CPI, right? CPI is a basket of goods that you know, we measure inflation against that basket mm -hmm. of goods doesn't really stay consistent, right? Whatever gets put in the basket is a, is a changing metric. So, I mean, we have all of these variables going into quote unquote inflation. And, you know, I, I think we're doing a poor job of measuring what exactly inflation is and how it's affecting the overall economy and the long-term effects that, you know, stimulating uh, or printing money has on the economy and specifically, uh, you know, this, this wealth gap that is uh, continuing to grow in, in this millennium. Mm. Right. That, that is a problem. Um. I think there was a statistic we were talking about not too long ago about how much of our money supply in the United States has been created, otherwise known as printed, uh, in just like the last 12 months, right? Yeah. I, Isn't it something like 40% or something insane? I think it was like 30 or 40%, yeah. 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 So, so I so, got a... A couple of statistics for you. And this oh, okay. Is, and this is just since, uh, you know, the, the start of 2020. Okay. Uh, the M2 money supply has gone from 14 trillion to 19 trillion. Right, so that's $5 trillion added in M2 money supply. Yeah. And the Fed's balance sheet has gone from 4 trillion to 7 almost 8 trillion. So that's another 4 trillion. And wow. I'm sure there's some overlap there, but you know, that's a it's a tremendous amount of of capital uh kind of papering over losses in the last year. Yeah. Big numbers. Big numbers. Big, big numbers. It's amazing that inflation isn't inflation, the meaning price increases on goods and services, 
isn't even higher, right? Yeah, that's that's the point I'm kind of trying to prove so here. So margins must be getting squeezed. Is that we've added, you know, $5 trillion in money, which is, you know, a form of inflation, yet the CPI seems to be lagging and not showing inflation. But also, uh, commodity prices have been rising tremendously, whether it's steel or timber, you know, all these raw materials, copper, you know, all these things are up like 40% this year. So I don't understand how... Right. So something else must be way down. You know, I I think, um, you know, the, the items that get put into CPI are the items that don't get affected by uh, money printing, right? So it's not accurately uh, showing the inflation. Right. But let's, let's, let's turn. That's an interesting thought. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's turn to the problems with inflation as an economic target, right? Okay. So inflation, um, usually occurs if if it's not monetary inflation, right? Just price inflation, I think is a sign of a growing economy, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. So that's why inflation is used as a target, right? Because we're, 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 we're measuring our economy on growth. I remember as a kid, inflation was crazy high. That's Not right. when you were a kid, when I was a kid. No, was in, the, a in, the, in the, seven, the 70s were a very inflationary period. Mm-hmm. And Paul Volcker came in and you know, put interest rates up almost at 20% to stop inflation. And then you know, since that time, our interest rates have been moving toward zero uh, to today. Yeah, right? they're pretty close to zero. Right. So we've, we've created this economy that relies on growth, right? If we don't grow, we have deflation, deflation's bad. We lose jobs. The economy's, you know, in recession. We have, you know, you know, that's quote unquote bad according to our metrics. Yeah. Right. Most definitely. The problem is, is uh, you know, we've gotten to the point where, you know, a small bit of contraction has huge effects. So we have to keep fueling this fire in order to keep it going, right? When growth is the number one measure, that's all you're trying to create is growth, right? We got growth at all costs. And, Interesting perspective. And to bring it back to your um, concerns about the environment, mm-hmm. it, it, it creates a tremendous amount of waste. When you set up your economy to run on, you know, this growth at all costs type of philosophy. Wait, say that again. It creates waste. Correct. Because of growth at all costs. Correct. Connect those dots. Okay. So, 
interest rates right now, let's just assume they're artificially low. Okay. Right. So people are more willing to lend money. Yes. More businesses borrow that money to try and create a return for their investors. Right. But since that interest rate is artificially low, you don't know if the business is actually having a positive impact on the economy because you don't know if that business would be viable in a higher interest rate environment or um, if money uh, was less, you know, free. Why is that creating waste? What do you mean? If you're giving me stuff that's artificially cheap, Mm -hmm. I'm more likely to buy it than if it was at its, you know, market price, which the interest rates kind of affect. Okay. Take the, take the airlines, for example. Okay. Right. They, they were running their businesses extremely irresponsibly, right? Thin margins, high debt, um, not good interest coverage ratios, right? When, when the pandemic struck and people weren't allowed to fly anymore, all of those airlines immediately went bankrupt. I mean, we didn't really let them go bankrupt, right? They got no. bailed out. Yeah. But, you know, that, that is an inefficient process, just handing them money, right? They, they, they were running their businesses improperly. They were not prepared for an event. And then those losses were papered over with new fresh cash, right? If they were allowed Mm -hmm. to go bankrupt, the assets would have ended up in the hands of people that would have treated them better. And maybe they could have provided uh, better services to their, you know, to their customers. It's not like, you know, all of that stuff just disappears. No, I think the, uh, Airlines, though, may be in for a really great summer. Good for them. They can, yeah. they can buy back their shares and make their shareholders happy, right? But, like, that's all really just financialization, right? It's not, it's not that they're, you know, providing that value to the market. Well, they're going to provide a service that the market wants. Right, but the, the P&L right? The profit and loss sheet, right? The income statement, like that, that's your scoreboard, right? That's, that's your scoreboard on how, you know, your, your profit is how much people are gaining from your service. When you go bankrupt, that means you are not doing a good job. No, that's true. Should be running your business profitably. Correct. You know, the, so the other thing with, with inflation as a target that I mentioned earlier is that, you know, we're fighting deflationary forces, right? So everything's really getting cheaper these days and we're expecting things to get more expensive. That's a problem. Mm. You mean like computer chips? Correct. Any industry. Not food. That- not food. Not food. Not food. But food a little bit. 
I mean, I think food right now is an interesting thing to look at because supply chains are disrupted, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there is technological progress in our food industry. Um, some people may argue that there's too much technological progress in our food industry. Yeah, the farmers would say that. Right, the farmers, the fishermen, the the ranchers, you know, everybody is creating these like industrial size food production operations, which is keeping food cheaper. You know, they all get subsidized by the government, giving them more money. It's got these, these deflationary pressures and we're expecting our economy to show inflation. It's kind of, you know, two sides of the same coin. Right. We discussed, um, you know, how the CPI kind of doesn't reflect uh, growing, growing costs that people really care about, right? Healthcare, education, the place to live, you know, all that stuff doesn't really get wrapped into CPI. That's a really good point. Right? If you were going to use CPI as a, as a reliable measure, you'd probably want to put the things that people rely most on in that basket. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Food, a roof over your head, water, <laughs> health care for sure. Anyway, what does all this have to do with Bitcoin? <laughs> Are you not ready to go there yet? Yeah, we can, we can talk about it a little bit. Um, I, I think it has to do a lot with uh, incentives. What incentives? So the, the, the people in charge at the Fed and the U.S. Treasury and the government um, are all kind of taking actions to keep this market propped up because mm-hmm. it can't go the other way. In, in 2008 specifically, right, I, I think was a, a big turning point. Mm-hmm. All, all this over-levered nonsense that was going on in the financial markets turned the other way. There were tremendous losses. A bunch of banks went bankrupt. Yeah. Right. The government came in, printed a ton of money, and saved some of the financial institutions. Yes, that's what happened. The reason they did that is because they didn't have a choice. No, there really wasn't one. Right? The the banks are our money. Right? When you deposit money into the bank, it becomes their uh, liability, right? They don't really have your assets, right? They lend them out into the economy. They're over levered, you know, but all of that stuff happens. And when the market goes down, they go bankrupt, but they can't go bankrupt because they are our money, right? So what, what we've created here is they get to privatize their gains and they get to socialize their losses. Privatize their gains, socialize their losses. 
right? If you were, if you were Debbie Corp, right? And you had, let's say a significant amount of America's savings in your bank and you were acting irresponsibly and you go bankrupt, but the government comes in and makes you unbankrupt, you think to yourself, hmm, if they did this once, they'll probably do it again. So I can continue acting irresponsibly because I know that I'm too big to fail. <laughs> and you think that's what's happened since then? Yeah, I mean, since 2008, you know, our, our banks have just consolidated even more and become even bigger, you know, too even bigger to fail. <laughs> yeah, it just creates a moral hazard, right? If you're not responsible to your PL, then you can act however you so choose. That's a good way to say it. Becomes a moral hazard. Same thing with the airlines. Like any industry that's too big to fail, if it fails, they'll just get bailed out. Too big to fail. Yeah. So there's no incentive to stop the bad behavior, right? The, the government has their hands tied because they can't let everybody, you know, essentially lose all of their money the companies that are receiving that money have no incentive to act better than they were. And we just get stuck with the bill. Yeah, we have. Yeah. And you and your children will be paying that bill. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So back to Bitcoin. This is supposed to be Bitcoin. Well, this, this topic is, you know, really instrumental to, you know, our core values as Bitcoiners is we have a stable, like disinflationary monetary policy that can't be changed by anyone. Right? Well, I know we have a finite amount of Bitcoin, but certainly the price keeps going up. Well, that's just measured in dollars. Mm-hmm. And as dollars continue to become less valuable, you know, measured against Bitcoin, Bitcoin will become more valuable. That's the whole point. Well, it certainly has. It's over 60,000 today. I don't know what it was the last time we recorded, but. And the, the, the main reason this relates back to our topic Mm -hmm. It's because you can finally price risk correctly, right? What does that mean? This whole exercise we just went through was just a matter of, you know, trying to price risk correctly. If, if you have artificially low interest rates and, you know, artificially more willing lenders, you can borrow more. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That risk isn't really being priced correctly, right? And if you default, 
you get bailed out. You know, that's just transferring risk from one balance sheet to another. You're not mm-hmm. really removing it. Right, the, the Fed has stepped in and bought a bunch of corporate bonds. Mm-hmm. Right, the bondholders were going to get defaulted on by whoever they were lending money to, these corporations. Right? right, that's how debt works. The debt is no longer worth what they issued it at. The lender now has losses they need to take, but they're not taking the losses. They're just selling the bonds to the Fed at face value. So that risk is being taken out of the market and just plopped onto the Fed's balance sheet, right? Mm -hmm. That debt could have defaulted, but it didn't because of an inflationary monetary policy. If you lend me one Bitcoin and I can't pay you back that Bitcoin, you lose. Yeah. As a lender, there's nobody that can print another Bitcoin to save you for making a bad loan. Right. So that's how, that's how risk gets priced more accurately in a Bitcoin economy than it does in an inflationary economy, because those debts actually have to get settled. You know, the risk needs to play out, right? You can't just transfer it to another balance sheet of a bigger fish. You were talking about now the, the, through the blockchain, right? What do you mean? No, just just like the unit itself. Right. Right. If you lend a billion dollars and that debt is now you know bad and somebody prints a billion dollars and just gives it to you, you have no losses. If you have one Bitcoin and you give it out, nobody's going to print you another Bitcoin. So nobody's going to give you another Bitcoin because they can't, right? It's not economically rational. Right, so it's it's a much, you know, much tighter lending market. It's a much tighter decision making process, right? When you have to be responsible to your balance sheet. Yes, you do, and you have to be responsible for all those little bitcoins. Actually, they're little satoshis. They're big bitcoins now. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. I told you this was going to be a little messy. Yeah, you know, I just, uh, I'm not an economist. Neither am I. Yeah. And it's really difficult because, you know, these days, the amount of money we print is not reflected in prices going up, except through assets, which is a problem. I can tell you real estate sure has gone up. Yep. You got more dollars chasing fewer, fewer goods. Well, a little bit of that has to do with the price of money being so cheap. Exactly. Artificially low interest rates hikes up the prices of assets. Yeah. 
and tight. And we're at the we're at the zero bound. We can't go lower unless they go negative. I doubt that's going to happen. We can't go higher because our you know our financial overlords won't let it. So we're kind of just stuck here in in purgatory mm. with Bernie Madoff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> bye bye Bernie. Bye bye Bernie. <laughs> bye bye Bernie. Anyway, okay. Uh, so are we just about at the point that we want to wrap it up today? Yeah. Okay. Unless you got any final thoughts or questions? Uh, my head's spinning a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a difficult uh, subject. I don't have entirely clear thoughts on, but you know, I think it is important to kind of separate the two forms of inflation, whether it's CPI or uh, monetary inflation. Yeah, you made a really good, you made that very clear. And it's also important to discuss why they're not really moving together. Okay. Something to think about. A lot to think about. And I thank you for that. Yeah. With that, we'll wrap it up. Okay. Thanks, Jess. See you, Mom. <laughs>